From the great state of Ohio, Buckeye Firearms Association presents Keep and Bear Radio, fighting for Second Amendment rights, calling out media lies, and telling the gun grabbers to come and take it. Now, Keep and Bear Radio. Constitutional carry is on the move in Ohio. There's a bill moving through the Senate and another that just passed out of committee in the House, and it's headed to the House floor for a vote. And opponents are freaking out. But what does this legislation actually change? Will bad guys really be able to carry guns? Will it really hinder law enforcement? You have questions and we have answers. That's what we're going to talk about on this episode of Keep and Bear Radio. I'm Dean Reek, Executive Director of Buckeye Firearms Association, and I'm joined by Ohio Representative Shane Wilkin to discuss House Bill 227. Representative Wilkin, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. I am very happy to be here. Well, Shane, I think we should start out this conversation talking about how you're an Ohio representative from District 91. District 91, now that's, that's not Chillicothe, but that's sort of, sort of south, sort of west of Chillicothe. Where, where is District 91? So the simplest way to put it is if you get on Route 50 from Cincinnati and come straight out, that runs almost through the heart of my district. And if you come down from Columbus, it, it's not quite a, an intersection, but it's pretty close. So I represent Clinton, Highland, Pike, and then just a little bit of Ross County, just below Chillicothe. So those are my uh, those are my area, my counties. I'm sorry uh, that I represent. It's a great area. It's a big rural area, and uh, oddly enough, on your show, I'm glad to say it is a big pro Second Amendment firearms area. Well, uh, that is where a lot of the support comes from, from the rural areas. That's what's great about Ohio. I'm from West Virginia, so most of West Virginia is very rural. Everyone owns a gun. We never thought about it when I was growing up. It was just, you just have guns. It wasn't even political. You know, it's it's interesting you mentioned that because it's it's been a few years now, but back when I was in high school, I lived across from the school, and I had a good buddy that when we would go on Christmas break, we both played basketball and we hunted on the school property. We would rabbit hunt on school property. When we got got time for practice, we would go in, literally lay our guns down in the uh, in the gymnasium on the floor, change our clothes, go to basketball practice for a couple hours, get done, suit back up, hunt our rabbit hunt our way back to the house. No one thought a thing about it. We never had any issues, never had any problems. We were responsible and respectful and it, it was great. We killed, we killed a lot of rabbits. <laughs> well, I remember going hunting with my grandfather, and, uh, you know, he was really old-fashioned. He would, he would occasionally hunt, you know, deer or things like that, but it was a lot of small games, so, you know, rabbits and squirrels and whatnot. And he would take the Wonder Bread bags and tie them to his belt. And so when he'd come back to the house after a hunt, he'd have all this small game you know, kind of dangling around his waist. And then it'd be up to my grandmother, you know, to skin everything and prepare it for dinner. And that's just the way it was. And there were guns hung up in the garage. There were the ones I could touch. There were the ones I couldn't touch. And you just never, you never thought about that. Yeah, I think that, you know, it's important to bring, uh, you know, I have two little girls. I have 10 and 11 year old. And 
Santa last year brought one of them a little Rossi combo, 410-22. Mrs. Qualls was a little concerned at first because she was not in on that decision. (laughs) But, um, you know, you try and you want to teach them to be respectful, that they're not they're not toys. They're a tool. But we've had a lot of fun at times going out and seeing who can outshoot who with little uh, 22 long rifles. So uh, I try to bring them up and teach them respect and teach them safety more than anything and uh, let them know that this is uh, it can be it can be a fun. It can be an enjoyable sport. You know, kids learn really fast. You can see that with you know, the iPads and the iPhones and computers and all of that, you know, they can be like five years old and, and they're showing grandpa, you know, how to, how to do all that stuff. They absorb stuff like a sponge. I've seen 10 year olds or 12 year olds on the range, you know, supervised shooting better than the adults because they they just pick it up so fast and they, uh, they learn the right way to do it when the adults are just standing there wide eyed, you know, like they can't believe what they're seeing. Yeah, I think it's all about getting them started and getting them started correctly. So that's that's the important thing. And that's that's what we try to do out here. So so what exactly does an Ohio representative do? I mean, a lot of people think of senators or representatives as, you know, they're the guys who do the ads on TV around election time. But <laughs> but but it's a job. I mean, it's a real job. What do you do as an Ohio representative from District 91? So, uh I think the the main answer to that is you do your best to represent the interest of your district at the state level. You do what's right and try to move your district forward in regards to economic issues, safety issues, um, and just, just progress, trying, trying to do what's right for your people. We have a lot of input from the general public. If, uh, if you happen to be in an area where you don't know your rep, I would encourage you to get to know them. Some of the best ideas, some of the changes that we do up here or a law we may make is brought to us from the citizens of the district. Uh, my wife reminds me more occasions than I would like that I do not have the market cornered on great ideas. And uh, I just uh, give you a great example. I just did a budget amendment. First time I've ever had one for a pilot program uh, down in my area. It's a little it's a little different. Our kids don't get the exposure to a lot of things. Some of your more suburban and more affluent school districts get. So we're doing a program with computer coding and it's going to be, I think, a fantastic program. It's going to start them at seventh grade with career readiness and go through the 10th and and then on through the, the 11th and 12th grade with the idea of getting kids certificates so that they can go into computer coding or at least be exposed to it. Uh, and that was brought to me by a constituent who works for a tech firm that said there's lots of opportunities, uh, but you got to have the kids ready to go. So, you know, it's a, I'm typically in Columbus about three days a week from Tuesday to uh, Thursday when we're in session. And as a committee chair, you got lots of bills coming through. One recently you might be interested in. And it's, it's, it's a wide variety. And, and what I would encourage people is, is understand that we are not experts on every every subject matter. So if you've got something going on that we need to know about, reach out to your rep here in my district, reach out to me and tell me what the issue is or the problem you're facing or better yet, if there's government in your way and it's a way I can get them out of your way, and get them out of your, out of your lane so that you can pursue the dream or whatever it is that you want and move forward. 
that's that's one of my goals is to try and eliminate roadblocks that the government puts up. So now you said that you were the uh, uh, chairman of the government oversight committee, and obviously we've been working with you on a bill that we're going to discuss here in a few minutes. What does that entail when you're a chair of a committee? What what exactly do you do? So as bills are, as we say, dropped, they are then go to rules and reference to be referred to a committee. And the committee chairs then, once they receive the bills, through work of the representatives that are carrying the bills, they get scheduled for hearings, second, third, fourth, fifth. Depends on what the bill is, how many hearings they end up having. Uh, But it's your job as the chair to kind of manage that, walk it through. If the representative is is working the bill, if there's issues, you say, hey, you need to talk to committee about X and see if you can, you know, they've got a concern or they've got an idea. And it's really important to talk to committee members after you've given your testimony, because as I mentioned, the uh, the, no one has the uh, market cornered on good ideas. A lot of times a committee member can give you an idea that makes your bill even better. But you got to sit down and talk to them, and, and then we work through the different hearings. We have proponent testimony, opponent testimony, uh, interested parties, and then uh, we get down to the point where we're ready to call the vote. And that's kind of all managed through the chair's office. So now we have a bill, and this is why you're here, HB 227. And this is a constitutional carry bill. There's also a, a bill in the Senate that's still moving through the process. Now, you recently voted this out of committee, and I just want to talk about how this process works. So uh, this bill or versions of this bill have come up before. I think there was one very similar in the last session. There may have been one even in the session before that that was very similar. In your case, there's been a lot of activity. You've had five separate hearings starting back in April. I think April 15th was the first one, and the latest one we're recording this on a Friday. It was just yesterday, October 28th. That was your last hearing, five total. And there were hundreds of people, hundreds of people who testified both in person and who submitted written testimony. Now, in your experience, is that typical? Do you do you normally have that much interest in a bill where, you know, the room is just packed? Uh, for the most part, no. Guns are a hot topic. Uh, when you come from an area like mine, um, guns are very important to us, but but it's not just rural areas. So, no, it's it's uh, it's a topic that's going to garner a lot more attention. It's going to garner uh, a lot more input, whether it's people for or people opposed to the bill. Guns just do that. They, they're they, people have hard opinions, and you know, I spoke with a lady in the hallway prior to uh, I did, I'm, <laughs> I made a mistake on that bill, and I forgot to tell my aide to download some testimony. So we had to start off with a break until he could get his testimony all downloaded. But um, I spoke to a lady while we were waiting out in the hallway and and she went through her concerns and, and I understand those. And I think it's important that we listen to those folks as well. But um, at the end, I had to tell her that, you know, on this particular issue, we're just simply going to disagree. But it, it definitely drew a lot of attention. So the status of this bill, HB 227, it's gone through all the hearings. You've had a vote. And what's the next step? Is it is it going to the floor for a vote now, uh, an up or down vote? Is that how that's going to work? Absolutely, yeah. It got voted out, uh, frankly, along party lines yesterday in committee. It'll go back to rules and reference to be scheduled for a floor vote 
which frankly I think will come sooner rather than later, which will be good. And then we will send that bill over to the Senate where they will accept it in and then they'll refer it to a committee and it'll start essentially the same process over in the Senate as it does the House. Uh, they have the opportunity to make changes that they see fit or that they would like to see. And as you mentioned, there's a bill in the Senate, Senate Bill 215, proposed by Senator Terry Johnson, which mimics a lot of the stuff that we ended up having in HB 227. That will be coming over to us at some point. And my assumption, although I don't have a say, my assumption is that we'll probably end up back in our committee and we'll work through this process again. And then at some point, we'll see which bill is going to get uh, sent to the governor for his signature. And if you had to predict, is it possible for, is it possible? I know you hate to predict, but this is always the question because this is what people are asking us. What's the possibility that all this is going to get done before the holidays? Because we're going to have Thanksgiving, we're going to have Christmas, and then next year, elections, and then everything goes nuts. So is it possible that we can wrap all of this up this year and finally have constitutional carry? So that's a tougher question. I would I would like to think we can. I think this is a pretty high priority for both chambers, the Senate and the House. And I think we find ourselves in a good spot where, um, you know, with the with the, the issues that are in the bill are something that our governor will sign. My I guess my biggest goal is to make sure we get it done. If it's by the end of the year, that's great. Um, and I would love to see that if it's a little later then. um as long as we get it done and in front of the governor as quickly as possible, that's my goal. So I want to play devil's advocate here because, you know, <laughs> I, I play, you know, as executive director, I've got to pay a lot of attention to not just what our testimony is, but what the objections are. So I, I'm usually working in the background, but I, I've heard all this testimony. I've heard it in years past. Let me just ask you these questions that come up in some of these hearings. And I just want, to, want you to field these questions, right? So uh, I'll do my best. So do you think that Ohioans can carry responsibly without the eight hours of training that's currently mandated to carry a handgun? Dean, I think the obvious answer to that is yes, because I was a yes on the bill. So I think they can. Uh, I think the majority of people that carry, I think you've seen training go up. I know I've talked to some people in this process that says, hey, I'm in the midst of getting my CHL or I want to get my, my CHL but I'm having a hard time getting into a class. And I think because the interest is going up and uh, people want to be trained, they want to do the right thing. And I I think you'll see that throughout. Uh, One of the interesting things was, as we went through this bill, and I want to thank you guys for uh, finally getting us this information that we'd asked for, but in the places that have implemented permitless carry, they have seen an increase in in their CHLs because there's people like myself that I have a CHL. I've had it since it first came out. Um, but if I travel and I have reciprocity with the states that I'm traveling through or uh, that I'm traveling to, I want to be able to travel. If I'm driving, I like to have my handgun in case I would have uh, a flat tire in the middle of the night as we're driving or whatever for protection of my, you know, my wife and two girls. So, yes, that's the. That was a long answer to tell you, yes, I think they can. Well, I agree with you, but again, I'm playing devil's advocate here. So let me let me continue being the devil. Permitless carry, is that going to allow guns to be carried in places that are currently prohibited? 
something such as government buildings, secure areas of airports, is that going to change the areas that are currently off limits? It's not going to change the areas that are currently off limits. Now, one of the hot topics that's come up is the churches. And we have a pastor on our committee whose church allows carry. And when people have asked me, they understood that we said, you're not going to be able to carry in a church. And that is 100% not true, but it's up to the church. It is between you and the pastor or the church board or whatever you have set up. It's up to you. I had a, I spoke to a young lady that says, we have a security team. I'm on that security team. And now we're not going to be able to do it. I said, not true. You will absolutely be able to do that. It's just, you won't, the, the, the current, the original version of the bill said either everyone can or you have to post. And I don't think anyone believes those signs work. They're not a deterrent, but they do help identify soft targets. And that's why I think that was a terrible idea to have in there. So no, there's no changes. The, the law would stay as, as it is written. What about the police? We've seen a lot made about this. Will permitless carry make the job of police officers more difficult? So I, I don't think so, because I think what we, the change we made, there's, you know, if you have a CHL, you have a duty to promptly notify an officer, uh, you know, if you get pulled over, you have to promptly notify. And believe it or not, there is those that have questions on what promptly means. And, and instead of leaving that vague, we have decided to say, if asked by an officer, you have a duty, you have a duty to be truthful and inform him. Either yes, you are, or no, you're not carrying. And as a supporter of law enforcement, especially considering the times we're in right now, I think it's very important to support them and to give them that opportunity to ask, and if asked, a truthful answer. Now, the argument to that is, well, the criminal is not going to be truthful. That, that very well could be true. But if I am driving home from Columbus after a late night session, and I hope this doesn't get me in trouble, but I have been known to go slightly over the speed limit on the way home. But, you know, if it's two in the morning and it's dark and a, a trooper pulls me over and says, hey, Mr. Wilkin, do you happen to have a weapon on you? I'm going to give him a truthful answer that I either am or I'm not, because at this point, I probably want to get my speeding ticket and get on home. And I think if you're if you're honest, you de-escalate that situation some, um, you know, you, keep, you, do, you do what's you do what common sense says. And this is the great thing. I've talked to a lot of people about this bill and uh, they're all like, this is this is common sense. You you don't go reaching around, keep your hands up, you answer the question. And and I, I think that's going to de-escalate. And if you're open and tell them that's better than trying to hide it. So what about property owners? I, I remember hearing one person giving testimony and saying, well, if we have constitutional carry or permitless carry, how are the how is a business supposed to know whether to allow you into their business or not? I thought that was an odd question, but is this going to affect property owners, whether they decide to permit carry or not in their business? So the first thing I would tell you is I am a small business owner, and the first thing I did was, I shouldn't say the first thing, one of the first things I did was I took a little razor knife and scraped off the front door that said, no concealed weapons, because I don't want anybody to know who's carrying. That's the idea. But no, it's that's part of like the church. It's between you and the church. If you're the property owner, you're the business owner, and you want to post, that is up to you. So one final question, and I think this is the essential misunderstanding of permitless carry, constitutional carry, 
uh, whatever you want to call it, license optional carry, that's what I've been calling it, will permitless carry allow criminals to carry guns? We heard this again and again in testimony. It's like, oh my goodness, if we pass this bill, we're going to have bad guys carrying guns and we can't do anything about it. Is that true? No. If you are under a disability of owning or carrying a firearm, that stays as it is. Uh, if you look, and, and this is one of the things that I made sure was inserted into this bill, that every place it talks about those that want to maintain their concealed handgun license, as well as those that just want to carry under the permitless carry, it says 21 years of age and under no disabilities. Not word for word, but that's pretty rough. And it's through the it's through the uh, the statute several times in the bill. But no, if you are if you have a disability uh, in the carrying a firearm uh, and you're prohibited from it, you cannot carry. Well, Representative Welkin, I appreciate your being on the podcast and explaining some of the process of how this gets done, talking about constitutional carry. Do you have any final thoughts about this? You know, the only final thought I would have is to say thank you to Buckeye Firearms and the NRA for uh, helping usher this over, helping educate some some of the committee members and uh, getting us to where we are right now. I greatly appreciate it. And uh, I look forward to getting this voted off the House floor, sent over to the Senate, and we'll go through that one. And at that point, hopefully, uh, wouldn't it be a nice Christmas present for all of us Second Amendment people to uh, be able to have constitutional carry on the governor's desk? Well, I guess we'll have to leave some extra cookies and milk out, and we'll we'll see what happens. That would be a great gift. Again, uh, Representative Wilkin, I appreciate your being on the podcast. Hope to have you back again sometime, and uh, we look forward to continue working with you through this entire process. Dean, I appreciate it, appreciate the time, and I would be more than happy to come back anytime and talk firearms. That's all for this episode of Keep and Bear Radio. If you enjoyed the podcast, I urge you to subscribe. And please subscribe to the Buckeye Firearms Association newsletter at buckeyefirearms.org. If you'd like to become a member and support the work of BFA, go to joinbfa.org. Use the discount code PODCAST to get $10 off your membership. That's joinbfa.org. We'll see you next time on Keep and Bear Radio.